from the Center for the Study of Race, Politics and Culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism and neoliberalism with your host, Michael Dawson. It's my pleasure to introduce my friend, colleague, and comrade, Tiana Paschel, who's sadly in warmer climes. She's assistant professor of African-American studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Her work broadly sits at the intersection of racial po ideology, politics, and the globalization of Latin America. She's author of Becoming Black Political Subjects, Movements and Ethno-Racial Rights in Colombia and Brazil, published by Princeton in 2016 which draws on ethnographic and archival methods to explore the shift in the 1990s from ideals of unmarked universal citizenship to multicultural citizenship regimes and the recognition of specific rights for black populations in Latin America. She currently at work on another book project that explores transnationalism and blackness in Americas that among other things interrogates the concept of racial paradises. And whether it's in my words, not Tiana's at this point, just an ideal of some French scholars. <laughs> Welcome. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So we have a lot to cover given the broad ramifications of your work and activism um, and organizing efforts at Berkeley, both academically and otherwise. But let's start where we usually start um, New Dawn podcast. Tell us about w at what point and for what reasons you became interested in the intersection of race and capitalism, however, you know, you think about that subject. Yeah, so, you know, um, there are a lot of different entry points here. Um, I think one of the most interesting ones had to do with when I decided to do work on on black social movements in Latin America, um, I, it became very clear that this wasn't just a question of sort of doing work to highlight what I think had historically been seen as a non-phenomenon, right? So there were a lot there were a lot of scholars on multiple sides of the debate that said that um, black resistance was unlikely in Latin America, that either because dominant ideas of the nation that exalted these nations as mixed race, racial paradises, that either that had like given way to a kind of racial egalitarianism, right? Or the more critical people saying that actually it's not a racial paradise at all in these countries, but that the dominant ideology is actually making people not have a strong oppositional consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. But both of, both of those kinds of accounts sort of had the same narrative of black mobilization in the region, right? They both thought it wasn't likely given the circumstances, right? And so I was determined to kind of question that narrative and really try to explain why it is that Latin American governments were drastically shifting their kind of official state discourse around blackness and around racial equality kinds of questions. Um, but when I dug deeper, it wasn't just the case that that there was a singular black movement or there was a single black struggle. There was a lot of tensions actually within these movements, not just over questions of kind of what policies they they were demanding or what their kind of modes of like resistance look like, but a fundamental question about how they saw questions of, of, of capitalism and development and the extent to which they wanted 
to be part of kind of mainstream capitalist development or the extent to which they were actually resisting against precisely that kind of um, version of the future. And so just to give one example, in the case of Colombia, what I found and what is very clear if you're on the ground doing ethnographic work, doing solidarity work with these movements is that there are radically different visions of the future that black rural communities and black urban communities have, right? And so what I was looking at is these kind of how how these different movements kind of um, came into existence and how they articulated their struggles. And what I found is that, and, th- and this is not a simple kind of left-right kind of politics, but what I found was that basically Black urban populations had certain kinds of critiques, um, but one of the critiques that they didn't have was of the dominant development model that was underway, right, in the country that meant that there would be an eventual obliteration of a rural life at some point, that the sort of future was going to be more urban and that they wanted black inclusion in that in that future, right? They wanted the kind of social mobility and the economic and political inclusion that came with capitalist development, right? Whereas black rural communities were actually coming out starting in, in the 70s and 80s with the kind of liberation theology kind of bent and 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 very critical of capitalist development, right? They were defending rural life. They were defending a particular way of being. Um, and they didn't want entree into kind of a mainstream extractivist kind of capitalist development. And so part of what I am trying to kind of understand in my work is, is these different kinds of, of Black political subjects that get institutionalized in the law, these different ways of engaging these questions of development, right? And also on the flip side of things, after Black communities get rights in all these cases that take all these different forms, including forms that are quite radical in terms of challenging some of the kind of unfettered versions of capitalist expansion, right? So giving people collective land rights that are not can, can't be bought or sold, right, on the basis of being Black communities, including a mechanism within the Constitution whereby Black communities can actually or at least in theory, have a say before, say, like a mining company or other transnational capital comes in, they they get to be consulted, right, before those kinds of things happen. So you, you have these kind of somewhat radical ways of kind of restructuring the relationship between these communities, between capital and between the state. And so I was interested in how 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 that played out. But it's also the case that in on the other side of things, in terms of like the extent to which these communities actually get to live these rights or not, you see capital coming in in other ways, undermining all of the gains, right? So you see these reactionary movements all over. And so that's sort of my entry point and something that I'm still trying to work on to kind of think about, you know, when when governments do not actually uphold or guarantee the rights of, of black populations in these countries, why are they not doing it? And I think the simple explanation is like some question of political will, but if you look closer, there are a lot of capital interests, both domestic and transnational capital, that are actually subverting quite actively, and in some cases quite violently, the exercise of black rights. You have a brilliant article at the SSR, Social Science Research Council's item, Reading Racial Conflicts website on thinking through the relevance of Walter Rodney's work and his work Mm -hmm. on development and capitalism Mm -hmm. and what it meant for black resistance in Africa and elsewhere. And part of what Walter Rodney talked about was just directly um, 
the role that capitalism played in under, underdeveloping Africa, of course, and mm-hmm. w- my work on the black left in the U.S. has um, often highlighted at various historical times, including the contemporary period, struggles within the black movement here p- about visions and a- orientations toward capitalism, at least within th- the current period, explicitly anti-capitalist organizing mm-hmm. had until very recently diminished, although it's beginning to come back. In your view, what's changed since Rodney wrote in terms of the struggles uh, for self-determination, independence, and social and racial justice and orientations toward capitalism, either within Latin America and more globally within, the, within Africa and the African diaspora? Yeah, thank you. I I really do find Walter Rodney's work really compelling today in the saddest possible ways, right? Like, I actually think that the kind of world of racialized global inequality that Rodney saw as an inherent feature to the way that capitalism was developing at the time has not changed much, right? I think that what has changed are significant things that make his work even more powerful, perhaps. Uh, I think there are certain elements that might need to be kind of refined, right? I think the two biggest factors that are kind of noteworthy is to kind of think about how low the barriers are for capital's movement around the world are and and what that actually does to exacerbate precisely the types of 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 um, underdevelopment that he talked about, right? That you know, there are borders for the movement of people, certainly, but less and less so borders for the movement of capital. And that leads to all kinds of devastating consequences, obviously, around the world. And it's not the case that it was in in the past where you have this kind of long-term sort of these imperial relationships factor into these kind of long-term but very specific kinds of investments in certain um, areas within certain countries. You have capital saying as soon as there's any kind of resistance in terms of labor or the environment somewhere, okay, we're packing up and we're going somewhere else. That's precisely the kinds of things that Walter Rodney indicated, but it wasn't as exacerbated. I think that the second thing that sort of problematizes a little bit of Rodney's account has to do with uh, the sort of greater share of, of profits that domestic elites in the global South have been able to get in this new world order, right? And But if you look at the general picture, it's not a, a, a real reconfiguration of power, not economic or political power. But what it is is that, you know, if you look um, on most of the African continent and certainly in Latin America, you have this version of the world that looks very much like what Fanon called the um, national bourgeoisie road, right? (laughs) Um, Which is to say that the sort of fights for independence and the kind of radical thinking that was happening at the time that Rodney was alive did not fully become this new kind of this new world of new relationships between labor and capital, but rather the kind of international bourgeoisie was simply substituted only partially by a national bourgeoisie, right? And so, you know, you get things like black capitalism, right, um, in South Africa and um, all over all over the world. And so I think some of the fundamental critiques of capitalism have, have remained kind of along the edges, right? There hasn't been the same kind of critical analysis that would actually question the fact that if you replace 
sort of colonial European capitalists with black capitalists, what you've actually changed about those relationships, right? And I think some of the most egregious violent actions against minors, workers, students um, in South Africa are a a really haunting tale of what happens when you leave the system in place um, and you simply replace who's who's at the top of those relationships. I might also suggest that there's maybe a third factor that's part of it illogical, partly policy mm-hmm. that has also exacerbated the conditions that Ronnie talked about a generation and wrote about a generation ago. Yeah. And that's the hegemony of neoliberalism, yeah. both as a set of policies and an ideology that A, reifies and celebrates market values in all spheres of life and mm-hmm. simultaneously particularly demobilizes and not only restricts the language that is possible for resistance, but takes mm-hmm. ideal politics out of most spheres of life or reduces politics to something quite banal of elections, no matter how corrupt and um, anti-democratic they may be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I absolutely agree, yeah. One of the... How does your new work on exploring racial paradises fit into this understanding of how the world has shifted since Rodney. Yeah, so um, this this particular work is still being formulated. I'm really excited about the project, but where it'll take me is still a little, I'm still open to different directions, especially thinking about what period I want to kind of really focus on. But in terms of the general project, what I'm, so the project uh, right now is called Exporting Racial Paradise. The idea is that I'm really interested in how it is that ideas around Brazil as a racial paradise come to be and get to be uh, produced and reproduced. On its face, it seems like a kind of cultural, intellectual history kind of project and not necessarily a political economy one. But what, where this project came from is, so when I was trying to kind of explain why it is that the Brazilian government went from denying racism outright for, for nearly a century to some of the most interesting affirmative action programs and ultimately ultimately widespread affirmative action programs that we see in 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 Latin America what i found is that that particular shift was only really explainable if we looked at some of the geopolitics of what were happening at the time and so in my book and in other work i sort of look at the role of of transnational black organizations, particularly black feminist organizations, in shaming the Brazilian government in the late 1990s and early 2000s to have them take a position on on racial injustice. And one of the questions I had there was, you know, why, why was it possible for black activists to actually shame the government? Like, why, why, what did the Brazilian government have in, at stake in in these international spaces that mean so little to the rest of the world. I mean, what comes into my work is so prominent is the Third World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa, that, of course, if anyone remembers that conference in the United States, it has very little kind of political political teeth because the U.S. 
boycotted it along with a lot of Western governments on the grounds that it was anti-Semitic, but mostly because they were scared of the threat of uh, of a real global movement for reparations, right? African countries were prepared to talk about the, the precisely the kind of underdevelopment that Rodney talks about in his work. And so that's where the second project came from, is to say, what, what, what kind of project does the Brazilian government, but also other actors, have in exporting the idea of itself as a racial paradise, right? What's, what's embedded in that project? And what I'm finding is that there's this really interesting configurations of different kinds of people that I call kind of transnational couriers of nation making that are are very important in this and that you can't delink the kind of symbolic project of the kind of soft power project that the Brazilian government has in terms of being a leader in a number of areas in terms of racial justice, HIV prevention, right, all and treatment. You can't link that kind of soft power, as international relations people put it, with the kind of economic project or the kind of bigger geopolitical project. So part of explaining affirmative action in Brazil is absolutely about the Brazilian government wanting a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. It's about the Brazilian government wanting to be an economic leader in the global South and to a great extent achieving some of those goals in the 90s and the 2000s. And now, of course, because of the commodities bust, they're coming to a head, right? And all of those kind of aims of the Brazilian government are starting to shift as our the commitments to racial equality are starting to shift too. And so I think for this particular project, I'm going to be tracing a number of different kinds of periods in Brazilian history and Latin American history that sort of actually match on to um, different kind of uh, political economic moments in terms of that region's relationship to the rest of the world. And so I think actually through a project about cultural politics and nation making, I'm actually going to be continuing to kind of think through that relationship between those things and 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 political economy. So I'm going to try to get you in trouble now. Uh, <laughs> so some have argued that those of us who study uh, black politics, particularly from a transnational perspective, are just a- imposing the view of the U.S. Uh, U.S. centric model of ethnic studies on a world that doesn't need it. Mm-hmm. But as a casual, and I'm not being facetious, as a casual observer, it seems to me that what part of what we see in at least Brazilian politics recently, tell me if I'm wrong, is both is a reaction to capital as things have gotten tighter which is allied with a reaction against some of the racially progressive policies of the Brazilian government, leading to a right-wing populist backlash. Yeah. Now, that sort of sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you think? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and I'm wondering to what degree you think that the sort of turmoil and volatility in Latin American politics, the displacement of the left in several Latin American countries, it's linked to a more global set of a combination of reactions of capital to try to reestablish this uh, even stronger hegemony and in a quite vicious mode, linked to a set of racialized and indeed in many cases racist policies. Or is that just more of a coincidence given the type of global atmosphere we, we live in? Or do you think there is more direct links either in the resistance or in the reaction? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a really important question to ask right now, and it's certainly a question that, um, at the very least, Brazilians are asking, and my sense would be, over the next few years, Venezuelans will be asking, Ecuadorians will be asking. And, you know, one of the a funny response to this is that Brazilians are like, hey, Americans, we are a couple of months ahead of you in all of this. Like, <laughs> so just know. <laughs> if you want to see the future of what Trump's going to do next, just look at Tamer, who's the interim president of Brazil right now. <laughs> and if we do do that, it's, it's quite scary, the outlook. And I think Brazil is obviously at a different place economically right now than the U.S. is because of how extensively that country has relied on its exports for economic growth, but also for the kinds of redistributive policies that were so central to the Workers' Party government. But I think that there is something here to really think about the connection between the kind of uh, rise of this populist right-wing movement um, in a lot of Latin America and a movement that has taken a lot of its repertoire of action, its aesthetics, its humor from the left, how that links up to uh, questions of racial inequality and racial injustice. And so, you know, the dominant narrative really, so I think the way that you portrayed it is the way that I think about it. But the dominant narrative about um, what's happening in Latin America right now is that you have, you know, the kind of benevolent reading of this is that you have a natural cycle ending of the, you know, the so-called um, pink tide or the the leftist regimes that through political parties were able to gain power over the last like, you know, 10, 15 years. You have this natural end of that. You have economic crises. You have this commodities bust. And so all of that has led to a natural cycle of a right-wing government. Obviously, it has not been so natural, right? You have the uh, political, politicized judiciaries oustering Dilma Rousseffi in Brazil. You have all kinds of populist backlash happening uh, around, around the region. And the dominant narrative, so the kind of more critical narrative of this is that this is a reaction, this is a backlash to the expansion of social welfare, right? You had these le- these leftist governments, even the most critical person of, of, of these political parties, even the most worried um, observer can't deny the fact that inequality has gone down, poverty has gone down in Latin America with these regimes. And so one way of thinking about what's happening right now is that people are reacting to that, right? That people within the kind of middle classes in Brazil, the white middle class, is feeling threatened by the opening of of certain kinds of spaces to the, you know, informal laborers, to people from favelas, right? That they don't want, they don't actually, they're not, they haven't lost anything, but they don't want to share space with people who are gaining um, some sort of social mobility. They, they're breaking the kind of like uh, class order. Now, in that narrative, race never figures into it, right? So most observers of this think of this as a backlash to social policies, right? To the policies that the conditional cash transfer policies, the kind of uh, zero hunger policies and these other ones, which it absolutely is. But it's impossible to understand the rise of the left in Latin America. It's impossible to understand the expansion of social welfare without looking at the ways in which left governments actually expanded what the left was. They are not like the old labor left that lost all kinds of political power a few decades ago in Latin America. They are a left that 
built in their pla- into their platforms ethnic rights. There are left that uh, did work around um, racial justice, and those policies are being punished. I would argue even more heavily than some of the social welfare policies. Those are the ones that people are most vehemently against, right? And I'm not sure how much any of this really challenges the kind of configuration of capital in the region. I think that capitalists are going to be fine, actually. I think there, this is a serious moment in terms of like the economic downturn that's happening. But what has happened with these new right-wing governments is that any kind of losses that certain sectors within Brazilian society, for example, have gotten have just been reconfigured and the stability for certain classes of capitalists have been left in, in place. The people who are really mad and who are on the streets are like the people who are really mad and on the streets in the United States. They are not uh, the capitalist class. It is a more populist movement. And I think that the kind of symbolic sense of loss and specifically loss to black working class and poor people is is what's driving the anger of these right wing populist movements in a similar way as the United States. One of the characteristics of the right-wing po- of right-wing populism in the United States and Western Europe that has a very strong, obviously racialized, anti-immigrant component to it is that component lacking or missing in in um, Latin America. Yeah, I mean, I think that there there's you know there are some interesting subtleties in 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 this particular way. So I. I think that when one looks at the uh, protests against Dilma Rousseffi in Brazil, and then one looks at all of the marches and protests for her, you do get a, like, just on, in terms of demographics, it's very clearly divided around class and race. But it is also the case that there, any kind of, like, deeper analysis of the kind of politics of of, of representation that are happening in these anti-Workers' Party protests, they're oozing with whiteness. So the kinds of narratives around the ouster of the Workers' Party is absolutely about taking Brazil back. There's all kinds of nostalgia <laughs> about the military dictatorship. There is all kinds of nostalgia about a good old time um, in Brazilian history that are very similar to the kind of prob- really, really disturbing trope of make America great again, right? So there are certainly um, similarities. I think the question of immigration is a little different. Certainly immigration is on the kind of upswing throughout Latin America. And a lot of domestic work, for example, um, in Brazil is increasingly seen as like the field of immigrants. It's, It's work that's being done by Bolivian immigrants and Bolivian and immigrants from other parts of South America, um, but that's not the wedge issue as much, right? And so one of the things that I think is super interesting and important for moving forward is really to have studies of the current political moment in Latin America, have people going to those protests where you have people who are fighting against the expansion of rights and social welfare to kind of understand the nuances of how race figures into this. I remember one of my friends who presents as white, he's blonde and has blue eyes and is a leftist social scientist who's basically doing really important work on the uh, garbage pickers movement or the waste pickers movement in Colombia and Brazil. And he was at one of the protests against Jilma. And he basically, within like a couple of hours of being out there in this sea of white people and people who assumed that he had the same politics 
only because of the color of his skin. <laughs> they said the most disturbing things to him within minutes. They were like, you know, the Workers' Party is 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 telling us that uh, white people are racist and that the country is divided and we're not a divided country. What is this? Like they're telling us that the Northeast and the South is different. These are the people who are dividing us, right? Um, when in fact, these are this is the party that has brought more economic equality, more uh, racial equality than any of the previous administrations. And so there's a similar language of like, this idea of like uh, talking about race is actually racially dividing the country, right? You said that, you know, there's a need for more studies in this area. Why don't you tell us a bit about the disparate displacement uh, Mm -hmm. project that you're trying to launch at Berkeley? Yeah, so we are in the early stages of launching this project. So I, along with um, several colleagues here, uh, Jovan Lewis, who is also in African-American studies and in geography, Raka Ray and others, we're trying to kind of think through how, how to make sense of what we see as a number of different kinds of displacement that are happening around the globe in various areas and kind of link some of our projects um, together. And what we're trying to do with the project is kind of look at processes of, say, land dispossession um, in rural areas in Latin America alongside processes of of gentrification in urban areas, right? And and kind of look at the racialized nature of, of some of uh, those processes, but also how people who are resisting those um, those dynamics actually see these as not just the expansion of, of capitalism, but also as racialized processes, right? And so the project would basically um, entail kind of thinking about how this happens in different sites. And one of the things that I think is really critical here is to kind of think about the role of uh, migration in, in constituting these these different movements. And so one of the things that sort of ties our work together, and Christina Mora, who's in sociology, is also part of the project, is to say, you know, take a simple question like domestic labor, right? And think about what is required for a domestic labor sector to kind of exist and what it's actually doing. And, you know, I know that you've written a really important critique of Nancy Fraser's work on the hidden abode of, of capital. And I think it's a really important one. And I think kind of along those lines, I think this disparate dis- displacements project would actually get at some of those questions of thinking thinking about how race figures into some of these moments of crises of capital. One in particular is to say, you know, part of what that article does is is say that, hey, there's this hidden abode of, of reproductive care effective labor that is actually necessary for the production right side of capital to exist. But it has to assume that that particular reproductive labor is happening outside of the market. But what we know is that both in the global north and in the global south, those have also entered into the market, right? The the contracting of migrant women, <laughs> whether it is migrant women from the northeast of Brazil going to the wider south of Brazil to work or from Bolivia to work, or it is Latin Americans coming to the U.S., it is a requirement of kind of advance of capitalism to kind of have this migrant labor to be able to do the affective work that is absolutely necessary to the functioning of capital. But it's not being done in the way that that article seems to 
to suggest there's movement happening, there's displacement happening. And so part of this is to kind of think about all those different forms of displacement, right? Labor and housing together and what that says about this particular moment of capitalism, the speculative nature, the speculative nature of it, the fact that everything gets commodified, including effective labor. So maybe we can end on a more speculative note, actually, which, and what I mean by that is the World Conference Against Racism in Durban in 2001 was, even in the United States, reparations was being put on the table. ABC News, for example, was doing national polls on support for reparations. Somehow there was a racialized patterns of support for reparations, which I guess we should not find too surprising. And it was shattered in the United States by the nationalism that erupted after the 9-11 attacks. Yes. We've seen in the years since 2001 an extraordinarily, extraordinary outpouring of, a, of right-wing nationalism in the United States and Western Europe in most of the in large sectors of the global north and the global south, as mm-hmm. you put it. I suspect a type of progressive, radical politics that we uh, we envisioned in 2001 are no longer suitable to the very dark political terrain we occupy today where right-wing racist nationalism combined with unf- increasingly unfettered capitalism reigns uh, quite strongly. What type of resistance, either nationally or transnationally, do you envision coming out of some of the... Mm-hmm places and peoples that you that you study and work with? Yeah, um, so I actually have a lot of hope <laughs> about the future. I mean, there are plenty of moments of despair. I think the most hopeful um, part of this particular moment has to do with the fact that these sort of linkages that we've been talking about for the last hour are becoming so increasingly like uh, visceral <laughs> um, and, 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 and stated and not hidden that it is bringing people together to resist in in new ways, right? So the kinds of um, activism, at least both in the U.S. and transnationally, um, that I've been able to participate in over, I would say, the last year have been really encouraging. I remember when I first went to Brazil and to Colombia, talking to activists, doing my research, I remember most of them would say, like, you know, if they they knew that I had come from Oakland because I was living in Oakland, I live in Oakland. I went to Berkeley for graduate school. I would say, oh, yeah, I'm 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 coming from Oakland. And they would say, "Ooh, are you part of the Black Panthers? (laughs) (laughs) They would be like, what's going on? And then I would have to tell them about COINTELPRO and (laughs) all kinds of (laughs) obliteration of the black left. Right. Right. And so this is kind of the first time in my life <laughs> where I get to say, oh, things are happening. We are doing stuff. And actually, there are multiple ways to connect. And those connections are happening naturally. They always have. They've happened in the early 20th century when African-Americans um, visited Brazil and were fascinated with the Black Brazilian Front a black political party that had um, emerged there. There have been these kind of exchanges for a long time, but at least in this period, I get to be a part of them. And I think that they're the kind of, the similarities are, are really 
glaring um, and they're really haunting. And I think that beyond the just uh, more general point that um, kind of racialized state violence has always looked similar in some of these countries, the fact that, you know, political violence has meant that Afro-Colombian political refugees, for example, have studied at Howard. <laughs> beyond those kinds of questions, the kind of similarities between the right-wing populism in, in some Latin American countries in the U.S., I think is going to require transnational approaches to this, right? And you see this already. So Black Lives Matter, the Black Youth Project, the movement for Black Lives more generally have been in conversations with Black activists in Latin America, doing precisely work around, around this, this moment. And similarly, I think in the U.S., it's sort of like... You know, I hate to say it, but maybe Donald Trump is a blessing in disguise in 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 the sense that the kinds of policies um, and politics he's putting forward in the long run are going to so overtly um, screw over working and poor people generally and also threaten the like lives and livelihood of all kinds of different people of color simultaneously means that people are going to have to struggle simultaneously. And so I think the most encouraging thing is to see, you know, Muslim activists who are not black holding Black Lives Matter <laughs> signs, I think, to think about where labor and all kinds of versions of labor would figure into this new kind of um, front is really exciting. And I actually think for the white working, the white formerly working poor who um, aren't the only white people who brought um, Trump to power, but certainly did so at higher, like came out to vote at higher rates than anyone expected them to, that when those little small performances of, oh, two jobs here, five jobs there, when that runs out and they actually don't have work, that they might actually also shift some um, in terms of thinking about what what the future holds in this country. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm hopeful that these these uh, ribbon cutting celebrations aren't going to actually bring food to people's tables or give them health care. <laughs> and and that um, and that the kind of political consciousness that has happened in the wake of social welfare expansion and racial equality policies in, in, in Latin America can't be um, it's not tr you can't change that, that people now feel more than they have ever um, that they actually have rights and that they should be included in the nation in, in different ways. Thank you. And I'll end with what I told some students two days after the election, which they said, what can we do? And you, you've answered it. Organize. Mm-hmm. That's it. This has been my pleasure to have a discussion with Tiana Paschel. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care, Michael. Take care, Tiana.